This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. Right On with Vanda Simon, brought to you by the New Zealand Society of Authors and kindly sponsored by the great team at Otago University Press. The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by the great team at the University Bookshop. Well, join us today for the next hour as we get to wallow in the wonderful world of books. Yindra Tishi was born in Prague and had a career in as an academic and lecturer there. But with all the political upheaval in Czechoslovakia, she and her husband and son fled first to Britain and then moved to New Zealand. And she established her career as a writer as well as lecturing on philosophy and political science at the University of Otago. And she's recently released her memoir, Prague in My Bones. Yindra, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's lovely to read minded. Now, this memoir you know, covers a huge period of time in Europe because it talks about you know, your parents, you know, from World War II right up to um, the, the period in time where you, had to, you were forced to leave and then into New Zealand. Um, and a lot of New Zealanders probably aren't too aware of you know, some of that political history. So can you summarise you know, a bit about those, you know, the political events and the breakup of Czechoslovakia and the Velvet Revolution, just to, to give our listeners some sort of context to it? Okay, I'll be very brief. Czechoslovakia was originally part of Austria-Hungary. In 1918, after the First World War, Austria-Hungary dissolved and Czechoslovakia was established as independent state, okay? But it was always threatened from two sides, by Nazi Germany and by Soviet Russia. So Nazi Germany uh, invaded Czechoslovakia in 1939, was a brutal brutal rule, which I've described. They killed over 400,000 Czechs, you know, of Jewish origin, but also just Czechs. And after the Second World War, it was sort of decided at the Alta by the great powers that we will belong to the Soviet bloc. So we were sort of given to, to the Soviets. And the Soviets first behave like that they are not forcing us to do anything, but in fact they have their soldiers on our borders. And the Communist Party, which was actually in Bohemia, the main part of Czechoslovakia, uh, elected to power by the will of people, but then after two years' rule, they behaved atrociously, nationalized everything, 
and that they would have lost the election. They knew that according to public um, support. Uh, so they made a putsch, illegal putsch, seized the power, and since 1948, right till the Velvet Revolution in 1988, there was a tyrannical uh, rule uh, of the Communist Party. Party. It was one of the most horrible time for Czechoslovakia. There were established labor camps. Uh, the population was again suppressed, and because they nationalized absolutely everything, nobody could own anything. Basically, the economic collapse. And and in 1989, <clears throat> Czechs revolted, but that wouldn't help them much if the Russian let them be. And at this particular time, um, Michael Gorbachev, the only really good enlightened leader of the Soviet Union, simply let Czechs to really do what they wanted. And the communist rule was dethroned. Okay, and I lived in Czechoslovakia right till the big Soviet invasion in 1968. After that, I was fired from the university for, from, for anti-communist activities. Uh, and I knew that eventually I will be thrown into prison, okay? So the stakes were very, very high for you, both you and your husband, you know, within that university. Were academics in general eyed with a suspicion, or was this just anybody who no, was educated? it was especially philosophers, because this was one the case of a very special revolution. It came from two, uh, two sort of uh, different... Uh, parts of the society. One, it was some intellectuals, some writers, and by queer of chance, all the members of various philosophy departments in Czechoslovakia, who simply from the start undermined the Soviet rule. They said it was unfair, and that was counted as the anti-communist activity. Okay. Then it was sort of followed also by the uh, working class, because working class was very, very suppressed, as it is under any socialist government. They had very meager salaries and horrible condition to work. Okay? And uh, in 1968, it sort of Soviet Union felt that Czechoslovakia might overturn the communist rule and that's why they invaded okay so this must have been um, you know a, a, a hugely tumultuous time but for, for you and your husband you know we it was your hand was really forced wasn't it because the stakes were very high if you tried to stay well I knew I would be imprisoned very soon. My husband was already in England where he studied his second PhD. He was a very talented logician. 
So the question was whether I would be able to follow him to England, supposedly only for a fortnight, because that was all what they allowed me. And I managed to get passport for myself, but didn't manage to get my son Peter on it, who was six years old, which would meant that he would have to stay behind and we would never see him again. So I make a decision Either I manage to take him with me, or I will have to stay in Czechoslovakia and simply go to prison when they will arrest me. And I had a bit of luck because by clear of chance, some nice lady at the secret police, so you can see that there were some nice people even at secret police, on her own allow me to put my son into my passport but it was sort of touch and go and i i knew that any time the the real people nasty people and the secret police would discover that really i have no right to take my son and that they might even arrest me on the train as i was leaving for the west there was always only one train to the west every year leaving at midnight, you know, it was sort of a ghostly train. So I just decided that I will just go for it and we see what happens. So I took Peter and we boarded a train on the 17th of November, 1969. And I knew that they either can still arrest me on the train or that they can arrest me in the border. It was sort of to, to, to take three hours from Prague to go to the, what was then was German borders. And then they probably will send me straight to, to the labor camp. Okay. So you can imagine that this ride to the border was not very pleasant. And at that point, I decided if I managed to cross the border, I will write the story, what was it like to live under this regime, and what was the suffering of people living under it, okay? Of course, if I didn't cross the border, then my life would be nasty, brutish, and short, as as Thomas hopes, okay? So you basically had to leave with just a suitcase. And that I was it. allowed. I was going for a fortnight. I was allowed to take personal hygienic things and one outfit per day. So I was allowed 14 outfits according to the season. So I couldn't take, because I was traveling in November, I couldn't take winter gear or summer gear. It has to be the autumn gear. So I have that one suitcase for me, one for Peter, totally inadequate, and that was all what we escaped with. Yeah. And we couldn't take any a penny, of course. It was anyway impossible because Czech crown was not convertible. Nobody would give you anything for it in the West. So not only did you have to leave... Um all your you know, positions and everything like that, but you, know, you also had to leave um, people behind, like your mum. How was that? That was the hardest thing. <laughs> and I quite honestly 
confessed to you that the memory of that, that I left this poor, widowed woman who loved desperately, especially Peter, my grandson, that I could leave her home unprotected because I know that the government, when I escape, they will be behaving viciously because they blame the parents if the children escape and that she would have absolutely no, <coughs> you know, that nobody would support her and help her. And that was the biggest decision of my life. Do I go for my mother or do I go for Peter? Because equally, if I stay in Prague with Peter, he would have horrible life. I would be in prison and he wouldn't be allowed to go to school. He would put in some horrible orphanage where they would mistreat him. So it was a gamble and at the end I decided to sacrifice my mother, but I never, ever forgiven myself for that. And that is just the most awful situation for anybody to be in. And I felt heartbroken for you when I you know, was was reading uh, about this. And and then you, didn't, you know, you, you first moved to England, but then moved, you know, even further away, you know, to New Zealand. What were the circumstances that brought you to Dunedin? Um, and how was it moving that far away? Well, we were completely penniless in Britain. Pavel had five hundred for a year for the scholarship, which was even in 1989, uh, I mean in 1969, there was not much money. So we have to live on it. But at the end of uh, 1970, we were threatened in, we didn't have any passport or any valid, valid documents. So the only possibility was that we managed to get some kind of job in the in England. Okay. Uh, so we sort of applied and didn't get anywhere. And then Pavel, who was already quite famous logician, managed to get a, a job uh, by help of Karl Popper, actually. Uh, whose whose best pupil, Arne Musgrave, was at the time in England, and he was offered a job in Dunedin. Uh, Arne was 29 at the time, the youngest uh, professor in the world, and he said, okay, I will accept the job in Otago, but there is no logician who could each proper course of logic, which was then... I mean, you know, logic is basic, basically um, the most important discipline in the various courses of philosophy. So the University of Otago told him, yes, okay, you can bring a log- logician of your and own you... choice. We, we allow you that. And he then asked Karl Popper, who was in New Zealand during the war, if you remember, uh, to recommend some logician to him. And fortunately, uh, Karl Popper knew well the professor in Exeter where Pavel studied, and the professor recommended him Pavel as the best possible person for the job. 
En Alan, hoe was Aurgrain benefactor, offered him on the spot the job. So that was quite an amazing shift um, to New Zealand. I mean, did you know anything about New Zealand before you came? And, you know, when you got here, how different was it to um, what you're accustomed to in well, both Prague but also in England? Okay, well, first that when Pavel came home and said, I have a, a job, I was offered a job, although he immediately said yes to Alan. I said, where is the job? And he played little games and said, yes, yes. So I sort of went through all the places in Scotland, Ireland. Then I said, so it must be in America. No, it's not in America. So is it in Australia? He said, it's in Dunedin. And I said, my God, where is Dunedin? Okay, <laughs> didn't have a clue. And then he said, New Zealand. And you would not believe this story. It's amazing. When I was 10 years old, I was re- reading Gilles Verne, you know, the French science fiction writer. And my favorite book was Children of Capitan Grant. And that book takes place in New Zealand. Ah, so, so you knew where of it was. all improbabilities, I knew very well about <laughs> where New Zealand is. Of course, in 19th century, as he wrote about. But that very day, I went to London, to New Zealand house, and read everything about Dunedin. They had all New Zealand papers. Mm. So when I came to Dunedin, which was on the 14th of um, September 1970, I knew all what you can know about New Zealand when living in England. The the sign of a a true researcher as well. And of course, you you came here um, for Pavel's work at the University of Otago, um, and as you said, he was um, a logistician. But your work was also in logic, um, and there wasn't space for two people. So, how did you go about establishing your own career in your own life? Well, that was the most difficult. For a start, Pavel's logic course was very, very difficult, and the normal tutors couldn't teach it. So Alan actually gave, led me to lead the tutorials to Pavel's lectures, because nobody else was able to do it, okay? But I knew immediately that I will never get a job of logician, because the Otago was small and couldn't allow to pay for two logicians. I will be eccentric. So I was sort of thinking, what is my second passion? And my second passion was hate of Marxism, because Marxism punished me in my life. Okay? So I was sort of had one eye on the possibility of turning into a political philosopher. And then I had an incredible good luck. I went to the two room, you know, in Otago, the academics usually have morning and afternoon tea, all departments together, okay? And I managed to be acquainted with two people there, with the professor Stappers, who was, uh, like, he was chair of the Russian department, and Professor Jim Flynn, who was the chair of the political studies department, okay? And I sort of knew I have to patch up my 
abilities to 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 get proper job for myself. So I did that. I started to teach in Russian because I have Russian gymnasium and I spoke Russian and knew Russian literature. And then Professor Flynn actually heard that I am a good, uh, uh, you know, teacher and asked me, would you be able to teach seminars to my lectures? Now, Professor Flynn was one of the most amazing, kind uh, people, an uh, intellectual giant, okay? And, of course, he sort of wanted to see how I will do. But we had one one passion in common. He was one of the very few people who was very well read, and the literature played a big role in his academic achievements. And, of course, he found out quickly that I was also very good at literature, and he wanted me to use literature when demonstrating political philosophy. Yeah. So this was sort of common background. And then for several years, he fought with the university to give me a full-time job. Mm. Okay. And I must very proudly say that I was the only woman who was appointed by Jim Flynn to the Department of Political Studies. Which is fantastic. So you, you had a very rewarding um, career, academic career here, and were able to establish yourself. So looking looking back, um, just to sort of wrap up, you know, this memoir is called Prague and My Bones, um, and you, you have been in New Zealand quite some time. But now, you know, what does Prague still mean to you now? Well, Prague is immensely beautiful city, and it's one of the most cultured, cultured cities in the world. It's sort of you wouldn't know because the the name doesn't say anything. It is thousand years old. It was founded, you know, two thousand and hundred years ago. Uh, it's immensely beautiful and it's immensely musical. I love music. There are three three full time operas in Prague. So the cultural life was amazing. But the downside of it was that people were not very nice. They they went through horrible times. They were occupied. They lived through several wars, you know, horrible um, atrocities. So one thing I love from Dunedin from the start was the kindness of the people. I don't think when you were born here or come from here, you probably don't realize what absolutely unique New Zealand is. It's got the kindest people in the world, okay? And I managed to find that immediately on arrival. People were incredibly kind. So if I had to choose, do I choose kindness over old ancient city? And I have to say yes. I do choose Dunedin over Prague in the long run. Well, thank you so much, Indra, for talking to us today about um, your memoir, Prague and My Bones. We could we could talk happily for a long, long time. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Wanda.
We're going to take a short music break now. Back soon. Just want to know ya. Just want to talk to ya. I want to hear about your day. I'd never leave ya. Never be mean to ya. I'll always let you University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on the show, the Otago South on the branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by the fabulous University Bookshop. Gay Buckingham is a writer of non-fiction, short stories and poetry and has recently published her first novel, Kākāpō Keeper. Gay, welcome to the show. 
Hello, Xander. Now, Kakawa Keeper is a novel that's steeped in New Zealand conservation history. So when did you first become interested in this? Oh, it's quite a long time ago, Vanda. It was when I was actually sailing over in Fiordland, and we were in Dusky Sound. And as one does, you start looking around, what's happened here, what's happened in the past, and I came across the story of Richard Henry, um, which was known to some people, but not to the gen- not to the general um, Kiwi. So um, Richard was, uh, well, one of the first conservators, I suppose, um, because back in the 1890s. And, you know, we tend to think of bird conservation as a modern thing, but it it certainly isn't. So when you're doing your research, you know, when did people and the government first become aware of species loss and the potential for extinction and the need for conservation? Well, it was interesting, actually, because, of course, the run holders had put tremendous pressure on the government to bring in mustelids, um, which is the collective name for stoats, ferrets and weasels. Um, they'd put tremendous pressure on the government to bring them in in order to try and counteract the rabbit menace, because rabbits had overtaken the country and were actually making many of the run holders, uh, putting them on the brink of, of bankruptcy because the grass was just gone. So they brought in um, against, there wasn't 100% um, enthusiasm for it. Many people warned of the potential dangers to our native wildlife if they brought in the mustelids. But um, but they, they, uh, the battle was lost, they were brought in, and it very quickly became apparent that um, the birds, particularly uh, ground-dwelling birds, were easy prey and... Um, it was the Otago Acclimatisation Society who first suggested that we try, or that the government try and rescue the birds by putting them on an island where they wouldn't be, where they would be safe from predators. And eventually, it was in the early 1890s, they persuaded the government of the day that this could happen. And Richard Henry was appointed the very first conservator, was the word they used. Um, and his task was to catch the birds on the mainland ferry them across and put them on Resolution Island where they would be safe or were thought to be safe from any of the um, weasels, particularly stoats and ferrets. Now, that is a very big job for one man. Yeah. <laughs> and they weren't very generous in those days. It was suggested that, um, that Henry should have a, a some sort of assistance particularly as he was away there on his own, so far from civilisation. The government wouldn't pay for an assistance, so out of his own pocket, Richard Henry paid um, some, a young, or four young boys actually. He regarded them as apprentices or assistants to learn how to conserve the, or what they understood was the method of conservation. And... um, they weren't all a success. In my book, I've rolled all four boys into one character. This, by the way, is a children, young adults book, uh, Vanda. I rolled all four into one character just for ease of telling the story. But um, there was one boy in particular who was on the next boat home, and uh, we don't even know his surname. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you'd learnt all this um, on your sailing trip, learnt about uh, Richard Henry and, and his role. So what compelled you to actually tell his story as a novel as opposed to, you know, a, a biography or a historical book? Well, 
I first came across from reading the Biggs Brothers books. They've written about both Dusky and preservation in it. But then afterwards I read a really very... I'm not sure, a biography written by Suzanne and John Hill, and it's a sensitive biography about a man of whom very little was known. He seems to have been quite a shy and retiring person. And he captured my imagination when I read about him. He seemed such a vulnerable figure, away over there on his own, absolutely committed to the task, and... I was writing or I was attempting to write a novel, an adult novel about, say, about set and that sound. And I kept finding that Richard Henry kept poking his nose in. And every time I turned around, here was this Richard Henry somewhere walking in my story. So eventually I just abandoned the, the novel that I thought I was writing and uh, wrote this one for children. It's all based on fact, Vanda, but it has got a bit of embellishment in order to make it um, more palatable. Yes, and and that's one of the fascinating things, you know. You say he he comes across as a quite a vulnerable person, and seriously, they put him in the remotest place you could possibly ever find in New Zealand. That's right, terribly lonely. They were service. Uh, there was a government boat which went round all the lighthouses and delivered food, food and storage stores to the lighthouses. <clears throat> that was how Richard Henry got his stores. The boat arrived approximately every three months, but of course without radio or anything, they didn't know exactly when it would arrive. Occasionally the boat would arrive and leave again and Henry himself wouldn't see it because he was away on one of the other parts and one of the other parts of the sound trying to find birds. Um, very isolated, very lonely life. He was also appointed, um, I've forgotten the exact word, but as, as a ranger to look after seals because seals had been completely culled out um, and there were none, believe it or not, over there at the time. He thought he saw one. Um, hard to believe now, but in that short, in the hundred years, the sealers had completely wiped out all the seals in that part of the country. So, so he had a, a dual role, just one person in an isolated place. Um, I'm sh- I'm pretty confident that he wouldn't have been taken that seriously or deemed a threat by any of the sealers or people. How you know, no. how was that element for him? No, that, that's one of his. I mean, there was absolutely nothing he could do, and he became the butt of jokes quite often. They would say to him that they had. <clears throat> sometimes sealers would come and say that they were there to go sealing, and show them their, his, their guns. Sometimes there was a sawmill in the next fjord. Sometimes the sawmillers would say things like, oh, well, we've just taken a dog over and dropped it off um, on the island, on Resolution Island, things like that. Um, there were other people. There were, there were people who went over there to see him and to see the work that he was doing. It was kind of an early conservation tourism. But many of the people there were not very sympathetic to his aims. Mm. So you mentioned uh, a couple of the biographies and things like that. Um, yeah, you know, you've got some interesting pictures in the back of the book, like um, manifest and, and um, store orders and things by him. Where were you able to find that kind of information? Oh, that was the best fun in the world. Um, <laughs> down at the Hocken, marvellous photos at the Hocken, and the staff were absolutely fabulous, assisting in, in finding you know, some of the early photos and things that they had. And then, um, 
Archives New Zealand Dunedin office also had all the um, original notes written by Henry, some of the sketches, even some of the maps he drew, um, and they were also amazingly helpful. By the time between researching the book and actually getting it to um, into the bookshops, um, all that information which I had gone down and seen personally at archives in George Street is now online in Archway, so anybody can look it up, look up Richard Henry and see all his notes, all the material that's been kept um, about his work there. So if you want to go through down a wonderful rabbit hole of research, investigation, mm-hmm. fascination, <laughs> that's where you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, as I say, you can do it on Archway now. Mm. But yes, no, it was fascinating. And amazing thing to, to look at this Victorian, very neat, not quite copper plate, but very neat writing, as he would have laboriously written those notes and things under with candle, candle and lamplight, um, with a smoking fire, because that helped keep the sandflies away. Mm. And the sandflies do feature greatly in the novel. Um, <laughs> now, one of the things... One of the things that really did crack me up about your um, the character, the young character, Andrew Burt, whose perspective this story is told from, was his, you know, the format of each chapter that it started with date, bird telly, injury telly. <laughs> How did that idea come about? Well, actually, it was a friend of mine who I started off with the date and with the bird telly, and she read a couple of chapters in which she's complaining about all his injuries and she said you should put that in at the beginning so I did (laughs) (laughs) yes because it's a dangerous uh, if anything seriously if there was a serious accident over there they were miles from anywhere they had no way of making contact Mm. Um, they they would have just had to suffer whatever injuries occurred yeah yeah you know they made that very clear that they could um, be killed and no one would know that's absolutely right, yep. So this novel is you know, pitched at that younger teenage um, readership. Now, why did you choose that particular age group? To be honest, I don't know. I think it was because I was intrigued with these four assistants that he had helping him. Um, the mother of one of them donated a lot of the photos that the Hocken has got, Um but to be honest, Thanda, I don't really know. I think I've been trying to write the adult book, which wasn't working. This other one kept popping in, and um, the child child protagonist seemed... It just presented itself. <laughs> With his own little complaining voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was, I suppose, one of the ways that you captured the imagination of that age group too, was, you know, this was clearly a young voice. Um, so so how, how did you sort of like weave that in more and try and draw more into that? Well, one of the things I thought was interesting was that um, both Henry himself, well, Henry himself and the Otago Acclimatisation Society believed that um, his work had been unsuccessful and that they had failed. In actual fact, when um, Kakapo were discovered in the 1980s, they used all Henry's original notes um, in ways of trying to look after them, capture them, and feed them in captivity. So although it was an apparent failure at the time, in retrospect, it was still very useful work. And I think that's an important lesson for anybody, and I think for a young person, it's 
important to know that we can't always make a judgment based on our immediate knowledge of what's happened. Sometimes, over time, what we think to be true turns out to be different. And I thought that was quite important. I also thought it was an important lesson that child went over, or the character in the book went over there thinking he was going to get fame and glory. <laughs> he didn't get fame and glory, but he found something much better, which was a meaningful work for, to participate in. And resilience. And, I, mm. and resilience, absolutely. And um, that was one of the interesting things was, you know, in the novel you talked about uh, Richard Henry, his meticulous note-keeping um, and observation on all these birds and how useful that was in the future, which kind of leads me on to, um, can you tell us a bit about the illustrations in the book? Um, I was really thrilled with those. Um, One Tree House is the publisher of the book, and one of the owners of One Tree House um, took great interest in it, and she suggested that she would like to make it more of a naturalist kind of um, Victorian journal, I had the diary entries and things like that in it. So she did the sketches, much as might have happened in in the way of Victorian naturalists, because, of course, they didn't have photography the way we do now. It took a long time to take a photo. Um, So naturalists generally tended to sketch what they saw as both a memory jogger and um, as a record. So that was why they're in there. And I know, I know. As, as a reader, I spent so much time looking at those illustrations and um, you know, ah. the pictures and the, the wee arrows and the little explanations there. It's so appealed. I'll pass that on. Yes. <laughs> we so, talked a lot about what would be suitable and drew up lists and things. And I tried to find source material for her to use, um, but it's it's Christine's work. So, how difficult was it to find a publisher? Well, it was, I was lucky really. Earlier on, I was a runner-up in Tom Fitzgerald's um, Manuscript Awards and they saw the early version and took an interest. It took a long time between that and actually getting it to publication. Um, but that was, the, that was the kernel at the beginning. Mm. So did you submit to many publishers or did you, was one tree, um, <coughs> one, well, tree the, one of the first? Interest. That was the first. Mm. I mean, I entered it in the manuscript competition, and it was from that that they picked it up. Mm. Now, that's fantastic. And and you're obviously very pleased with, like, the illustrations and and the format um, and things like that. Is this type of writing something you'd like to carry on with? Have you scratched that um, sandlight itch for the moment? I'm not sure, Vanda. I did initially, you know, when we first started talking about the book, I, I had quite a, uh, I had two ideas. I liked the idea of writing about children on the cusp of adulthood finding their way through, and particularly in New Zealand settings. And there were two or three, or two particularly, southern, both set in the south that I thought about. But now I've seemed to have wandered off that idea, so I'm not sure whether there will be a, a second book or a third. I don't honestly know. <laughs> so one of the things that really did strike me so much about this book was how re- hey, relevant it is to today, but um, also you know, how much that core of conservation is, is steeped in the past and that we weren't, um, that I didn't expect and didn't actually realise 
had started so late, you know, in the 1890s for this book. Um, but one of the things that, and I'd love to know your comment and feelings about it now, is, you know, you had in there that a government employee had to provide bird skins and feathers, live birds for collectors, museums and aviaries. I mean, nowadays we sort of have a little shudder and horror in that. What were your thoughts in coming across this information? It just, it just makes your hair curl, really, doesn't it? And what I found extraordinary was that Buller the much-famed buller who was the cataloger of so many New Zealand birds and um, famous all over the world. Um, he was one of the people who was most insistent that he have bird specimens stuffed or um, just the skins to take and to trade um, for other specimens. He also um, tried to persuade Richard Henry to give his notes, Henry's notes, to buller. Um, and Henry, in his quiet, dogged little way, refused, which has always tickled me to think that someone could stand up to a man of international reputation. But no, it is it is frightening um, that that so many of our birds were taken as not trophies, but just as specimens, interesting specimens to go to museums around the world. There was also a lot of fashion particularly in the early 1900s, using birds in women's hats, the feathers from particular birds in women's hats. But the story, well, the story I liked best, Vander, is um, they thought kiwi was particularly good at um, digging up worms. And there was actually a person here in Dunedin wanting to buy or get some kiwi from Henry to keep in his potato patch to ensure that he doesn't have any worms in his potatoes. <laughs> that, that was hilarious. <laughs> it was very, yep. very good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gay, for coming on the show today and talking about um, Kākāpō uh, Keeper, which is a, a wonderful um, novel pitched at teenage readers. But I know, a, a, as an adult reader, I really enjoyed it and learnt so much about New Zealand conservation history and just a really good story. So thank you so much for coming on. Ah, thanks for the time to talk about it, Vanda. That is our show for this month, so thank you for listening in, and thank you to my guests, Ginger Tishi, talking about her memoir, Prague and My Bones, and Gay Buckingham chatting about her novel, Kākāpō Keeper. So join us again next month for another fun hour wallowing in the world of books, but until then, enjoy lots of great reading. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.